I feel like I'm about to announce a drink special. It's Feisty Fridays here on Real Talk. Jesperson here with you. John Hicks ramping things up on this Friday, (laughs) May 6th. I'm feeling good today. Yeah, feeling good? Yeah, I'm feeling great. All right, good. Is there anything in particular that's put you into this headspace? Because I will say, I I just about actually told a white lie. What's that? I was about to say you walked in with a big smile on your face, but the truth is you were here before me, and and I walked in to a smile on your face because you were already here working, but you had a big smile plastered on your face. I love the weekend, baby. Let's go. For me, it was the rain in our neck of the woods. We woke up to rain a little well or the or the the after effect of rain and there's just something about the smell there's something about the kind of the general vibe you know some people are going to run they're going to step out depending on where you live you'll step out of your house this morning and then you'll pop right back in and realize you should have just a light spring coat on yeah my wife loves this because yesterday was like oh it's so hot but isn't that alberta though like we get the late winters and then when summer comes it's like here's a little Take yeah, it back. here's a tiny here's little, little bit. We ease into it, and then August, we're just like, oh. <laughs> we get a reminder of why you don't want to live in plus 35 all <laughs> yeah. the time. A friend of mine just moved to Vancouver. She was posting yesterday on her Instagram. She said she looks into the camera, and she's like, so it rains here a lot. <laughs> and she's having a hard time getting used to it, but we don't get a ton of it. So anyway, yes, great day. I don't know why we're just, there's, there's well, I do know why. Big We've got show. a great lineup coming up. We have an innovation roundtable. Our friends over at Edify, uh, and you can check out their website at edifyedmonton.com. They've got their annual innovation issue out, Mm -hmm. and they're celebrating people that are basically uh, impacting huge change or pushing their industries forward when it comes to great research on on some of the things that we don't think about, we take for granted things like health policy, artificial intelligence. We're going to get into things like carbon storage and a ton yeah. of really fascinating stuff. All of this leading up to a big event coming up on the 11th of May that we're really proud to partner with Edify on. I'm excited to host it. Uh, the new CEO of the Edmonton Elks football team is going to be there. Love Victor Cooey talking about that. Yeah. This guy has uh, his whole career, and he's been on the show. If you missed Victor on the show a while back, I, I guess that was a couple of months ago now or something like that, six weeks maybe uh he talked about what he brings to this new role the elks had the the challenge but also the opportunity of a big rebrand turn things around which i think they nailed i love their rebrand i think they did a really good job but but bigger picture and it's not just that football club but it's the entire canadian football league and for that matter maybe pro sports in general Mm -hmm. their challenge is always coming up with your next generation of fans right the next generation of season ticket holders Victor's so, just, he's a big thinker. He doesn't think yeah. small. And I really think uh, things are going to be great for the Elks this season. I've got a little announcement I can't say yet, but I, I, went, I was actually at the stadium this week talking to them about something. But can't say anything yet, but we'll, next week, next week. The non-announcement <laughs> announcement. I love it. That's a veteran I got to wait for the official, but we'll see. Infamous building excitement. <laughs> this is great. Uh, Sapria Devetti is coming up in just a little bit. Our innovation roundtable. And then, of course, we've got Trash Talk coming up to wrap up the week. I appreciate those of you. One of you, uh, you got it in. I'm, I'm happy to let you know, Lorna, we did receive your email just in time at 8.17 a.m. Mountain Time on this Friday, which means that you're going to be included in Trash Talk because I love the subject matter you took on. But we've got some great emails coming up. That's how we'll wrap up our show. Uh, Sapria kicks us off every Friday. But first, let me remind you that Bitcoin Well, the title sponsor of this show, and our job is to remind you every single day, not necessarily to to run out and buy Bitcoin because it's probably not the right fit for everybody. It It might not be a good decision for you. It also might be the best decision you've ever made in your entire life, but you've got some questions. You want to understand 
what this blockchain is all about. You want to understand when people are talking about custodial finances, self-custodial situations. What does that even mean? And where is this all going anyway? I recommend you ask for Benny specifically. That's who I talk to at Bitcoin. Well, you'll find him under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, it wasn't the official English language debate that's coming up next Wednesday, but five of the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership hopefuls, five of the candidates gathered last night for a debate in front of Canadians who I think had some key and consistent observations throughout, but I don't want to assume anything. I'm going to be looking at the live chat, following our hashtag and talking to our next guest. She kicks us off every Friday. She's director of policy and engagement at the Center for Media, Technology and Democracy. She's a senior counsel with Enterprise Canada. You've seen her on Power and Politics. You've read her in the Toronto Star, the National Observer. She's a member of our Real Talk editorial board. It's always great to see Sapria Devetti. A good Friday morning to you, my friend. Good Friday morning. So I'm paying attention to the chatter uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday evening, as these conservative candidates are talking back and forth. And there seem to be some common themes about not necessarily positions that certain candidates were taking, but the theme of the debate overall. Before we get into some of the highlights, some of the specifics, by the end of it all yesterday, what was your one key thought? What were you left? What was your takeaway as you turned off your television or your screen? I mean, my one key thought, I think, was that the debate was a little light in terms of substantive issues, which is, you know, fine. As you noted, it wasn't like one of the official debates, Um, but it was just weird that it was like really heavy on like cancel culture and, you know, left wing wokeness gone awry. Um, And there wasn't really anything on healthcare in terms of how we would improve it or the economy and you know, Russia's war in Ukraine was sort of off the radar as well. But it is what it is, I suppose. It'll be interesting to see what some of the other debates were. The other thing that really stood out to me was the fact that Patrick Brown wasn't even on the stage. Um, so it's like as they were all out debating, my guess is, you know, he was out selling memberships, which you know, good for him. Um, but, yeah, I know we're going to get into a, a little bit more detail uh, because I think there are two really big standout moments. One is that Leslin Lewis went pretty hard at uh, Pierre Polyev in terms of accusing him of basically cowering away from social conservative issues and not giving a straight answer, as well as only speaking up uh, against vaccine mandates when it was politically convenient. But I think the really big thing for last night that will carry over is the fact that Jean Charest went really hard on um, Pierre Polyev's stance on Bill 21 in Quebec. Uh, we have uh, some clips locked and loaded, Supriya, so let's get right to it. And, and this Leslie Lewis one, uh, Dr. Lewis attempting to hold yeah, Pierre Polyev's feet to the fire, but I, it, it's his response that I think is, potent, like if I'm a member of his comms team, if I'm one of his strategists looking forward to a general election where he's going to try to convince Canadians he should be the next prime minister, this is where I thought the cringe factor was turned up to 10. But hey, I'm not always the expert on these things. Here's the exchange from last night. Pierre, 
Well, I did stand up for freedom during the pandemic. From the very beginning, That's I was, not true. I That's was not among true. the loudest voices that You were not one of the loudest if, voices, Mr. Pauly. You were not one of the loudest voices. In if fact, could, uh, you did not speak up until it was convenient actually, that for is you not to true, speak Madam up. Lewis. You did not that even not go true, to the, uh, the, the trucker protest. You actually oh, went and you took a picture in your neighborhood at a local stop. Let's hear from you Mr. did Mr. not Polyev, speak up for the, um, for the truckers and you did not speak up the loudest, Mr. Polyev. First of all, I did go to the trucker protest, both on Parliament Hill and in my community. You took a picture I, I was, of I was, I was there at the pro trucker protest. I was on the street. I was in the, uh, supporting those who were fighting for their freedoms. When it was and, I did, and, and I did, in fact, I did it if I could. If I could, if I could, in fact, I opposed the vaccine mandates as soon as... So he goes on to talk about his opposition to mandates, his participation and enthusiasm for the trucker protests. Uh, maybe it works. It probably works, quite frankly, in the leadership race. But how damaging could this be down the road? I mean, pretty damaging. But this is something that conservatives consistently do, right? Um, when they're vying for the leadership race, they are appealing to the hardest elements of their base. And, you know, that makes sense. They have to sell memberships and they're not trying to appeal to a general electorate. But of course, when it comes to a general election, they often find themselves, as both Sheer and O'Toole did, they find themselves bumbling about trying to figure out how they're going to either walk back their positions or fit diametrically opposing views into one weird box so that they can convince Canadians that they're, you know, moderate and represent this larger swath of who fits in the Canadian middle, uh, that they should be uh, the ones to form government. And it's just, I, I don't really know how Polyev's team is going to be able to walk that back should he win the leadership. Because of course, the more information we get about the Freedom Convoy, uh, the worse it looks for any politician that was full-throatedly endorsing them. And I'm not talking about the folks that just joined, um, you know, ha somewhat haphazardly because they're like, oh, it's a party going on there. Let's let's see what's going on. It's more about the actual organizers and the motivations um, behind the reasons for going to Ottawa to begin with. I thought that this was... Uh Pretty good insight from Greg McEachern. He's been a political staffer. People see him as a political commentator on a number of different outlets, including Sirius XM. He says uh, he tweeted last night. Remember when Michael Ignatieff said to Stefan Dion during a debate, quote, you didn't get it done. And the conservatives used it repeatedly in the following election. Greg says between the conservative support of the occupation of Ottawa and tonight's leadership debate, the campaign ads are writing themselves. Would you agree? Yeah, 100 yeah. percent, of course. And I think, you know, Andrew McDougall, who is a former director of communications for Stephen Harper, has a column now in the I believe it's the Ottawa Citizen today that's making that exact point using the exact example of uh, Zion and uh, Ignatieff and how, you know, basically the conservatives use that friendly fire as a term that, that he used um, again and again and again. And I would imagine that, it, you know, the liberals and the NDP and the bloc are going to do the same thing to the conservatives. I wanted to tee this up because I know that for you, uh, I mean, your home province, uh, most people that tune into this show on a regular basis know that you're, you're coming to us from the Toronto area, uh, but you're a born and raised Quebecer. You grew up in Montreal and Bill 21 is something we've always wanted to pick your brain on. Supri and Jacare, uh spoke to that last night. Here it is. We've, there's been a lot of talk of freedom right now. Well, I have a question for Mr. Poliev. There's How this much? bill in 21, bill 21 in Quebec. 
This was a piece of legislation that restrains the rights of Canadians to wear religious symbols. This proposal was put to me when I was Premier of Quebec, and I refused to do it even if it was popular at the time to do it. I refused to do it. I stood up on principle. Now, when Bill 21 was enacted, when Bill 21 was enacted, I, I wasn't running in this race, and I pronounced against it, and I'm still against it. And in Quebec, this bill is very popular. And that doesn't make me any more popular in Quebec, but I want, to, I want to ask something here. During this leadership race, I have said that if Bill 21 goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, my government will stand and speak to the interest of Canada. I will not be neutral on this issue for my country. Pierre Polyev has said in French in Quebec, no. not elsewhere in the country, that if it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, he will not speak on behalf of Canada. So Pierre, this idea of freedom, is it real or is it a slogan? It's real. Okay. We're, uh, why won't you no, stand up for gentlemen, gentlemen? Why won't you stand up for the Supreme real. Court in the, in for those who are affected? Did Mr. Shrey score a legitimate point on Mr. Polyev there? 100%. Um, that's going to dog Pierre throughout uh, the campaign. And I mean, you know, Cher, as you noted, is, is a particularly interesting figure in all of this because of his role uh, when he was Premier of Quebec. So just to give your you know, listeners a little bit of background here, it was his government who had announced and assembled the Bouchard-Taylor Commission that initially looked into the you know, reasonable accommodation debate in uh, Quebec to begin with. And in their final report, the commissioners very famously found that it was more or less a crisis of perception in which the media environment in Quebec had you know, largely propelled the issue and, you know, exacerbated it and made it uh, a much bigger issue than it actually really was in, in reality. Now, Jarret, for his part, also, it should be noted in, in like 2010, I believe, uh, his government tried to introduce a ban on the niqab if one was going to be receiving um, or giving government services. The law never ended up passing for, you know, whatever reason. But it, it, it so, you know, he doesn't have a completely clean record just just to point that out. But it is interesting that it is obviously a very popular position in Quebec, Bill 21, that is. And Charest is going to get, you know, hounded in French media for his, you know, previous stated positions, as well as how hard he went against Polyev, you know, last night. But it's it is rather clear you're either for freedom or you're not. And if you're for religious freedom, which presumably, you know, every single conservative leadership contender is, then you should be against Bill 21 if that's the case. Why do you think that Bill 21 hasn't seen the spotlight that a lot of people argue that it should uh, through federal election campaigns, leadership races, what have you? Is, is it just the fact that it's so politically combustible that it's such a hot potato that you think people just don't want to touch it? Like, were you were you I mean, obviously, Sheree saw an yeah. opening there last night to score a point. But for the most part, I. You could almost be led to believe that most politicians stay as far away from that subject as humanly possible. Yeah, they do. And I mean, I think it's, you know, on the federal side of things like the electoral calculus is 
is what is obvious here, right? Like there are a ton of seats in, in Quebec. Um, nobody wants to alienate an entire province where seats are up for grabs because that's the other thing about Quebec is that they don't necessarily always vote um, traditionally one way, like is the way Alberta does, right? Like they're pretty reliable to vote conservatives. Whereas um, in Quebec, you know, they'll vote for the bloc, they'll vote for the NDP, they'll vote for liberals, they'll vote for conservatives. Like it's, it's so it's, it's, all, it's all up for grabs. The interesting thing, though, is that conservatives are also the only federal party that has a real path to form government without Quebec. Um, and so and they've done it before. Right. In, in 2011, Harper got his majority largely without Quebec because it was the NDP that swept the, the province largely. And so they have the most sort of ground here standing to be able to take the, the toughest sort of stance on this. And yet they don't. And it's political cowardice that they don't. And it's also interesting that in Alberta, for example, um, where their base very clearly is, uh, support for Bill 21 is at its lowest. Um, and that is because, you know, Albertans very much care about personal freedom and, and religious freedom. And so it doesn't really make a lot of sense. There's a lot of incongruency here. And I think further to that, it's very hard to appeal to other areas of the country, particularly in and around, you know, Edmonton, in and around Vancouver, in and around Toronto, um, where it's a very, you know, ethnically and religiously diverse area by saying, yeah, you know what, your brethren in Quebec, like we don't really give two shits about them and we're going to let their rights be trampled on because it's electorally popular for us there. I'm having one of those moments where I go, it'd be a lot easier to not talk about what's going through my brain right now. It'd be a lot easier just to roll into the next question, but I feel like I want to go here. But the, my hesitance is that I, I only have anecdotal observation. I don't have polling. I don't have facts. Okay. This is just my impression, but it's interesting for you to hear, to hear you talk about Alberta and, and how typically uh, the culture here, uh, the political culture or people's personal inclinations on things like freedom or freedom of rights or expression or religion or what have you uh, would support um, those folks that feel targeted by Bill 21 in Quebec. But what I remember, Supri, as well growing up, and this might just be an example of the squeaky wheel, like it might be a loud minority. I don't know. But I do remember two stories from my teenage years into my early 20s. Number one. Um, young men of faith uh, with, with religious imagery, the Kirpan dagger, like wanting to wear mm -hmm. that dagger at school. And number two, uh, sick men uh, serving with Canada's National Police Force with the RCMP and turbans with the RCMP. And like I said, I don't have polling from then. I don't have polling from now, but I do remember a ton of of pushback on both of those stories. Do you remember that? And if so, how do you think these line up? Because it's essentially the same thing. It is essentially the same thing. And that is interesting. I, I would say that, you know, the Multani case that you're referring to was a while ago. I think it was like 2006. Yeah. yeah. Um, if so. Right. And the RCMP case was even uh, prior to that. So it, a lot of time has passed and, you know, demographic change could um, be part of that. But the other part of that is is just like once something becomes normalized and it's no longer an issue, then it's normalized and no longer an issue. Right. And so people would I, I would assume in that case tend to soften their 
position a little bit. I mean, you know, once the Kirpan, once the Supreme Court ruled that the Kirpan could indeed be worn by school children, you know, provided it was in a sheath or whatever the mm-hmm. the requirements that they, that they had laid out, um, it's not like we saw an explosion in anything going wrong, right? And so it's like all of those fears were indeed misplaced and very much misguided. And perhaps people just realized that their fears were exactly that. Hmm. Before I and I do want to circle back on the fact that Patrick Brown just wasn't there last <laughs> night and and strategically, maybe that was a smart move. I guess we'll wait and see. But but shows like this aren't talking about. Well, here I am talking about him about yeah. not talking. About <laughs> Never mind. I digress. But we're, we don't we didn't come to a more clear understanding of what his positions are on anything. We didn't. But maybe that was kind of his team's idea. Like you said, maybe he's out selling memberships. He will be there next Wednesday for the official English language debate. But what we did see last night, including the cold shoulder, no handshake between Polyev and Sharay as the debate wrapped up. But we certainly saw some personal barbs. And Sapri, I'll get you to chime in on uh, this one in particular. Here it is. He believes that I should be censored. He believes I should be canceled from this leadership race and disqualified, in his words, because I don't share his liberal viewpoint. That is the kind of cancel culture and censorship you would expect from Justin Trudeau. But instead, we're getting it from this liberal on this stage. <laughs> Frankly, Mr. Charest, for you to talk about law and order is a little bit rich given that your party, your liberal party, took a half million dollars of illegal donations when you were the head of that party. The average trucker has more integrity in his pinky finger than you had in your entire scandal-plagued liberal cabinet. So. So I, I do stand up for the freedoms of Canadians and I acknowledge that the working class has been demolished in this country over the last couple of years. We don't need elites who've been able to rely on special contracts with Huawei to to look down on them and call them criminals. Instead, we need to stand up for the people who are struggling and give them hope for the future. And that's what I will do. So, uh, I mean, liberal as a slur, that was the playbook for Poliev aimed at Jean Chéry. Are these shots landing? Maybe. I don't know. It's like... Everyone knows he was a liberal, right? It's not some secret. It's not like he figured this out via like extensive opposition research and it's some bombshell that Jean Charest was uh, a, you know, a liberal premier in Quebec. And I think for folks that, you know, are from Quebec or have any knowledge of Quebec politics, they also realize that liberals in Quebec are, you know, somewhat analogous to liberals in British Columbia insofar as they're not necessarily traditionally aligned with a lot of the center left policies of the federal liberals. And they are very much their own, you know, jam. And it's not uncommon in either Quebec or British Columbia to have federal conservatives who then are also working behind the scenes or in the government of the liberal of the liberals of those two provinces. So it's it's a, it's interesting that Pierre's going so hard on that. Um, I'd imagine it works well in certain conservative audiences, but you know, for a Quebec audience, um, which I realized last night's debate wasn't necessarily geared towards, but for a Quebec audience, I, I don't think that really lands all that well. You know, one of the things that that I have have noticed uh, in our home province of Alberta, and maybe across the prairies, but certainly in Alberta and certainly under this government and sort of the political tone that we've seen uh, over the past while. Um, it also strikes me as as significant that people have sort of had to audition uh, as conservatives. They've had to prove 
their conservatism. It's it's like the party tries to sell itself as a big tent party, but also spends a lot of time uh, explaining to people why they're not true conservatives or putting untrue conservatives into the crosshairs. And it seemed to me last night like Jean Charest was put into that position, uh, having to prove that he belonged on that stage, having to prove that he was a legitimate contender for the leadership of this party, having to prove that he's not the Trojan horse or the liberal insider coming in to bury that party. And of course, he did respond to Pierre Polyev. And, and here's a portion of what Jean Charest had to say last night along those lines. So here he is, Jean Charest, this from last night's leadership debate. We may not agree on all issues, but who are the people who call themselves social conservatives? <clears throat> and I'm not a hyphenated conservative. But who are they if not people who have a faith-based life, believe in their families and their communities? Sounds like pretty good people to me. And they are part of our family, and they will always be part of our family, and they need to be respected. Now, in this room tonight is Preston Manning, who called before this debate that we act respectfully in the view of uniting the party after the leadership race. Well, so much for that, Pierre. So much for that, Pierre, says Josh Charest. Was he effective? I don't know. It kind of sounded like a dad there that was disappointed in his uh, unruly teenage son. Um, I think that, you know, I think, again, that lands with a certain demographic of the Conservative Party, folks that, you know, maybe are a little bit older that are really itching for the party to go back to a little bit more to the center to be able to appeal to more moderate voters in suburban areas. But I don't know if that's who the party really represents right now, especially in the leadership race. So. This leads up to next Wednesday. We'll have Patrick Brown back into the mix. How significant do you think he'll be as an, as an addition to this? I mean, how, how do you assess his campaign to this point? Nobody's talking about him with regards to policy today. How much does that matter? I don't think it matters at all, quite frankly. I mean, the vote isn't until September. There's still a lot of time um, before then. And I think, quite frankly, you know, he's going to be getting a lot of the same types of attacks. I think that um, Pierre tried to land on Charest. So I think last night probably gave his team a little bit of insight and a little bit of prep to do for the official um, debate uh, when next week on the 11th, I think. Yeah. Um, when that goes down. I wanted to ask you, I mean, it, it, we've spent a lot of time talking about this conservative leadership debate and we've got you for just a few more minutes. The biggest story in the world right now. I mean, it's got to be Ukraine, but but everybody's talking about this, this Supreme Court, you know, appa apparently where the court appears to be trending, which is to be uh, on the road to overturn Roe v. Wade, you know, essentially a 1973 ruling that has had a major impact on abortion access in the United States and would have a major impact were it to be rescinded. It's prompted a lot of conversation in Canada uh, for obvious reasons about access to abortion. People want to know. We had a roundtable earlier this week. What could a Supreme Court decision in the United States mean for access to abortion or abortion rights or abortion legislation, for that matter, in Canada? And our structure is quite a bit different than the U.S., we should note. Uh, how are you wrapping your mind? Generally speaking, uh, questions general on purpose. Uh, how are you wrapping your mind around what you're seeing out of the United States and what you're seeing here in Canada? It's it's fucked what we're seeing in the United States. This is a massive regression of women's rights. And you, you're not an equal person under the law if you don't have dominion over your own body, if you don't have bodily autonomy, right? And so we're talking about Roe v. Wade and the rollback of Roe v. Wade in the context of women's rights and abortion. And we should, right? Because that is what the decision is about. But I think people really need to appreciate that the 
legal underpinning for the draft majority opinion that was leaked is all centered on the right to privacy. And Roe is essentially a legal decision that is centered on the right to privacy. And once you take away that right to privacy and some of the uh, precedents that led to Roe v. Wade and some of the precedents that have come thereafter, it's a very, very dangerous place in America. And there are all sorts of other rights that end up being at stake. The right to contraception, the right to uh, sleep with the person of your choice, whether that means interracial or whether that means for a gay man and you want to have sex with another gay man. Um, the right to marriage equality, which was as recent as 2015, was also really centered on the right to privacy. So there's all these rights that are at stake right now um, that could all come crumbling down. And there are a number of states in the U.S. that already have legislation on the books that are defining personhood at the moment of conception and are treating abortion as though it was homicide, including in death penalty states like Louisiana. This is it's just fucked. Like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm not really being very articulate right now. There's not a lot um, for, for, for me to say other than that. And I think Canada has to be quite prepared for the fact that not only um, will we have to provide, you know, safe access for American women that are uh, going to be seeking abortions or other, you know, contraception, uh, contraceptive procedures like insertion of IUDs. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that we do have an anti-choice movement here in Canada. And you're right, it is different. There's a lot of things that are very different. For example, in Canada, the issue isn't really about legality or criminality. The issue is access and funding. Um, and right now in New Brunswick, for example, there is a legal case underway that is, you know, trying to improve access. And with what's happening in the U.S., we're going to see a more emboldened anti-choice movement here in Canada. And they're already very well organized. They're already pretty well funded and they already have quite a bit of influence in conservative politics in this country. And it's not divisive or wedge politics to point that out. That's just those are the facts. It, it is what it is. I. Uh... First of all, I, I agree with your assessment of it, and I think that sometimes it's fucked is as articulate as you need to be, because sometimes things are so twisted up and so nonsensical and so troubling um, that that sometimes that fits. I mean, the health implications of this and what this means for people and, and the, sort of that general women theme, will die. Women right? will die. I mean, and that. And, and that's the point people are making. People are saying, uh, you know, laws against Shannon Watts, you know, that uh, obviously Shannon has a connection to she, she's a, a fierce lobbyist for personal reasons in the United States when it comes to gun legislation. And I'll paraphrase her tweet the other day, but she basically said the same people that are arguing that gun laws don't stop gun crime are arguing that abortion laws or changing the abortion laws will stop abortions. And they know that it won't. And uh, the general theme has essentially been that this isn't going to stop abortions. It's going to limit the number of safe abortions. And that's something that I think everybody really needs to think about. You've alluded to this, Sapria, but in Canada and the United States, I mean, Senator Elizabeth Warren with a passionate, I mean, a sort of a parking lot bit of preaching the other day essentially said in uh, Supriya, you talk about the organizing. She said this has been in the in the works for years. They've been planning about this for years. But you look. Generally speaking, in the United States, approximately seven out of 10 Americans support a woman's right to choose, support a woman's access to these health services. Yet at the same time, this is the direction it appears the highest court is going. And that's going to be a tough one for most people to wrap their minds around. Yeah, totally. But, you know, Republicans since Reagan, right, have been very open 
about what they wanted to do here. And so that's why pro-choice activists on the ground have been warning about this moment, um, you know, for a very long time. It's not that they were particularly clairvoyant or prescient about what was going to happen in the future. It's just that they took Republicans and other anti-choice um, activists at their word. Um, so we should probably be listening to the anti-choice movement in Canada when they say they want to, you know, roll back access here. And we should be listening to what politicians say when they show up uh, to, you know, anti abortion and anti-choice rallies when they say things like that they want to make abortion unthinkable in their lifetime here in Canada, which is what a PCMPP said uh, a couple of years ago when he was at a rally. So it's just like, I, I don't understand why we're pretending like we're in some sort of safe space and that there isn't, um, there aren't issues here. There very much are issues here. They're different issues, of course, but they're still there. Yeah. Sapria, it's always so good to have you here. The time always flies. We appreciate your availability. That's Sapria Devetti, who joins us at this time, 840 Mountain, 1040 Eastern every Friday. Uh, you can catch her on Power and Politics as well. Read her work in the Toronto Star, the National Observer, and follow her on Twitter at Sapria Devetti. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Ryan. All right, my friend. You can let us know what you think about what you just heard there. I love her analysis. Always appreciate it. And we appreciate yours too. talk at RyanJesperson.com is how you can get in touch with us. The hashtag RealTalkRJ as well. And of course, our live chat when we're up on YouTube, although we had like there's like there, I was going to say, are we it? being like, censored? Are we because being censored? A lot of political talk. Our morning. YouTube just went and just shut off for a second. Freedom. And, and we see that people are slowly coming. People are coming yeah. back. People are refreshing. You know, there's no way for us to, to be. Some people, I think, switch over if something like this happens happens yeah. and, you know these are circumstances outside of our control i think it's because i will say that's the first time we've ever dropped yeah while just I, dropped out the channel yeah, just yeah. dropped but we're out back. so One come back but, but a lot of people will jump over to our mixler the live streaming audio that app that was fine that and of course drop. the podcast will be bulletproof so you know there's always different ways to catch real talk we appreciate when you subscribe ap across our platforms see i see a chance uh, for, a, for a shameless plug right here <laughs> so i'm going to take it Do when it. you subscribe across our platforms when you rate our podcast we appreciate that too and when you tell your friends sharing our content along the way hey tonight's a big night it's opening night at northwest fest that's right nothing but the truth it's the longest running documentary festival in canada and it's back in person with in cinema screenings at metro cinema the legendary location in Edmonton, just south of the North Saskatchewan River, just on the south side of the historic high-level bridge. We'll be there tonight for Who You Gonna Call? Real Talk proudly presenting opening night as Ray Parker Jr. and filmmaker Fran Strein join us to hear the story of the man that gave the world the Ghostbusters theme song, but his career way more than that. As a matter of fact, I kind of feel like that's I kind of feel like the most impressive part of Ray's career is being on stage 17 years old with Mick Jagger and Stevie Wonder. But maybe that's yeah, just me. Yeah. Maybe that's just me. You can join us tonight. By the way, we have two pairs of tickets. If you want to go check it out for free, we're going to be awarding two pairs of tickets. If you hear this before, let's say 2 p.m. today, 2 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Eastern, send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. In the subject line, just say win tickets, and we'll choose two lucky winners. You and a guest will be able to join us. Of course, Northwest Fest runs for the next couple of weeks. Amazing films locked and loaded, including Kaepernick in America, the story of Colin Kaepernick. What about The Long Rider, the story of an aspiring journalist who traveled on horseback from Calgary to Brazil? There's even the cannons. That's 
On Mother's Day, screening on the 8th of May, following the lives of two black hockey players and one legendary coach in one of America's toughest neighborhoods, Southeast Washington, D.C. Also, Love in the Time of Fentanyl, the powerful documentary that we'll be featuring here on Real Talk next week with a Real Talk panel discussion you won't want to miss at northwestfest.ca. You can see the full lineup and get your tickets there. Our friends at Grand Dog Essentials have a ton going on. I mean, they care about the holistic and complete and total health of your dogs. That's why we partner with them, not just here at Real Talk, but as a family. We've been buying our quality raw dog food from Grand Dog way before we started partnering with them on the business front. It's because they help us understand things. For example, through their blog posts, which you can check out at granddog.ca, there's a new blog post, Why Is My Dog Refusing Their Food? They've also got great input on how dog food can impact or lessen seizures in dogs. And of course, some great client testimonials as well. The promo code REALTALK gets you 10% off your first time order delivered to your door in Calgary, Edmonton and Central Alberta via granddog.ca. Our friends at Athabasca University, Canada's online university, what a great reminder yesterday as, as we were hearing about fat and the stigma around fat and how fat's not a bad word. Crystal Yan was a is an Athabasca University Master of Counseling student. It just reiterated to me how many different programs they have going on there, how much research is happening at Canada's online university. You know, more than 40,000 Canadians attend Athabasca University in one way, shape or form. You can get started today at AthabascaU.ca. Wow. Nice out. I just wanted the band you're, to finish. You're killing it. Yeah, I saw, I saw the, the drummer there. We made eye contact, me and the drummer, and he just, I saw him. He wanted, to, he wanted to run the toms, and I said, I'll get out of your way. I'll get out of your way. We've got a busy week next week. There's a lot coming up. It sounds like John, uh, our producer, ha- will have some form of announcement. I'm very intrigued and excited about that. I'm very excited about it, yeah. I believe I may have an announcement of my own next week, which wow, I'm also wow, pretty wow. excited about. Okay. And we will also be participating in, I'm really excited to attend and host Edify's innovation event. Yeah. Uh, Victor Cui is going to be there. He's the keynote, uh, the new CEO. Uh, I mean, he's the, the guy that's steering the ship with the Edmonton Elks into this new territory, new brand, new opportunities, new audience. That's his job, the president and CEO of the Edmonton Elks. It's Innovation 2022. It goes Wednesday, May 11th. Still some tickets available. You can check out edifyedmonton.com. They celebrate innovation once a year, in fact, with their official innovation issue. And we'll be showing it to you digitally. I'm holding it in my hands right now. I love a paper copy of a magazine. To me, the paper copy is <laughs> Here's the, oh, a better look. And wait, 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 what's this on the back cover of this Edify? Man? Look at this. We're oh. proud. We're proud to celebrate the work that Edify does telling remarkable stories of people. People in our home community that are making a real difference. And I'm thrilled that three of the stars, three of the individuals featured in the innovation issue for 2022 have agreed to join us this morning. Dr. Ross Mitchell is a professor in the Department of Medicine. He's a fellow with the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. Everybody knows it as Amy and the senior program director of AI, artificial intelligence adoption with Alberta Health Services. He's the first ever. He's the inaugural Alberta Health Services chair in AI in health at the University of Alberta. Now, in past, he was the first. He was the first AI officer at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. He's a professor of radiology at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. You've heard about that, of course. And a professor of biomedical engineering, radiology, and clinical neurosciences at the University of Calgary from 2000 to 2011. Basically, John, what I'm saying is he's way smarter than both of us combined. I was just going to say, quite Way the smarter than both of us combined. Uh, Dr. Lily Pang 
is a virologist uh, in medical and environmental fields in public health laboratory, Alberta Precision Lab, and also professor of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at the U of A. She's also the principal investigator at the Lee Kashing Institute of Virology. She's one of few pioneers. This is fascinating. I can't wait to get into this. Uh, who initiates wastewater-based surveillance on COVID-19 in Canada in, through the early stages of the pandemic. This is what she was working on. It earned her. Can we show her feature in, in Edify? I love this. The title of the feature, <laughs> The Poop Scoop. Brilliant. Whoever wrote that deserves a special shout out. Uh, Dr. Pang has led several research projects funded by federal agencies and has also done a ton of work with collaborative network supports from multiple stakeholders. And rounding out our innovation roundtable today is Dr. Mark Summers. This is a really neat job that he has. Chief Strategy Officer for Emissions Reduction Alberta. So when politicians talk about reducing emissions, when, when, when people driven by the right things, like people with an environmental conscience, say we need to start doing more on this, it falls into the lap. It falls onto the desk of folks like Dr. Mark Summers as Chief Strategy Officer. He's a professional engineer. He's a PNG who holds a bachelor's degree in engineering physics, earned his doctorate in nanostructured engineering from the U of A. He's been working in the innovation space for more than 15 years. He's helping accelerate development of tech that will deliver real action toward Alberta's net zero ambitions. Wow, what a lineup. And we're thrilled to have uh, the three of you, Drs. Pang, Mitchell, and Summers with us uh, today. Lily, if I can ask you first, uh, the poop scoop. What a cool way of, of uh, putting into layperson's terms uh, the general theme of the work you've been doing studying wastewater. When did you first understand how significant this type of research could be in understanding how COVID-19 was impacting our communities? Uh, we can't hear you, Ryan. Oh, they can't no, hear sorry, us. Sorry, Ryan. I'm, oh, that's no problem. You're talking to us. We're... Um... Okay, we'll get that figured out. You can't hear me at all. Uh, okay, John's going to try to get that figured out. And um, what we'll do is uh, take a look. You still can't hear me, I'm assuming. None we, of you we, can. We can, just, can you just came through now. You can you hear me now. On the Zoom. Okay, it, it feels like I wish I had a cell phone ad. Can you hear me now? What can you hear me? <laughs> now you can. So you didn't even hear your introductions. You didn't hear me did, singing your praises. Not. Oh, nope. my goodness. Well, let me tell you, uh, I hope our audience heard it. And I think they did. I basically ran through the three of your CVs and talked about how you're so much smarter than John and I combined. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Peng, why don't we get the ball rolling with you? I, I was I was commenting on how much I love how your story is presented in the pages of Edify, the big headline, the poop scoop. And <laughs> for most people, I remember the first time I heard that wastewater was being used to understand how COVID was impacting our communities. What a fascinating area of study. How did this wind up on your radar? When did you first understand the significance of that type of research? Okay, I can start the talk, right? Can you hear me? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> okay, so actually... For using wastewater to do the packaging is something not new because we have been using that to do the, you know, enteric virus like a waterborne disease. Actually, in back to 2003, Europe used the wastewater to lock in for poliovirus. So that is a huge problem, I think. However, in that time, it's really used convince very old technology. Not like us right now we are using, we call the 
RT-PCR, very sensitive. We can detect a very tiny piece of the only one target, one virus in the wastewater. That is totally different technology improve. Yeah, of course. Firstly, I think there is three, three things, factors is really make us successful. First, it's the right time. You know the pandemic hitting us in the 2000s in March. So lot of uncertainty, lot of unknown. We need a different technology platform to looking for this disease burden. So that previously, the, there is a scientist since the Wuhan occurred, the pandemic, immediately people notice almost 50% of people who infected shedding their virus in the poo-poo. Then, of course, shedding live the virus in the poo-poo. Then the poo-poo distributed to the sewage sample it's almost died. However, we can detect that died the virus as an indicator to looking for disease burden. Of course, the second one is the technology. As I said, PCI is much, much more sensitive, provide sensitive, also quantification is important. We know what's going on is up, down the disease. So this is second. Third one, of course, it's collaboration collaboration because our team is include a very diverse the team include you know engineer scientist and a medical doctor and a virologist and from different university even national team working together make us to make us successfully so did that answer your question? Absolutely. I mean, and, and with every great answer, Dr. Pang, it just means that I have a hundred more questions, which is which is excellent. And I'm glad that I have the three of you here. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, you, you know, I, I, I think that there are probably some common threads between what we're going to talk about to Dr. Pang, what we're going to talk about with you. And, th- and that is some longstanding traditions or, or some methods that have been around for a while, but then the evolution of those to address current or future problems or issues or challenges and then also collaboration i mean you know we, we read through your cv and, and you've you've been at the mayo clinic and you've done a lot of work in the medical field but you're, you're an ai expert and your job is to predict and address where healthcare is going using artificial intelligence it earned you the moniker in the pages of edify mr robots i love yeah. the piece how how you believe that alberta-based ai may accelerate the healthcare process uh, to the average layperson can you explain exactly what you're doing Sure. So uh, one of the problems physicians and frontline healthcare workers face is this uh, inundation of data from all different sources. Everything now is digital in medicine. Everything's connected. We're recording it all. And the amount of data generated in a day is just phenomenal. And the, the problem is that the data is sometimes incomplete. Uh, sometimes it's in conflict. And the healthcare worker has to use what they can to try and make the best decision for the patient at the point of time be it a diagnosis or a treatment. So uh, these AI algorithms are not going to replace physicians or frontline healthcare workers. They are power tools for complexity is how I describe them. It's like a chainsaw to a forest. Uh, We wanna build tools that will help physicians and frontline workers manage and understand the vast amounts of data so they can make better decisions quicker. That's it. 
That's it, except, except for it's fascinating stuff that the average person's probably not aware of, right? That this is actually happening. Like, does the average person understand the role that AI is playing or will play in our personal healthcare moving forward? Um, probably not. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's profound how this is going to change because uh, healthcare is actually an information uh, business. It's, you know, we're, we have a lot of in common with Google and Apple and companies like that, that we're managing information, digital information about the lives of people instead of what they watch or, you know, what they're listening to or what they're buying. Um, but it's the same basic principles. And we actually try and leverage a lot of the technology that's developed for other fields and bring it into healthcare. So um, all the time I'm reading about advances in other fields and thinking, you know, how could we use that in healthcare? Why reinvent the wheel? Let's just try and import it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward, uh, Dr. Summers, to, to getting into what you do. Uh, when I introduced you, I was talking about what a cool opportunity and, and what, a, what a challenge as well it must be to, to be in your position as chief strategy officer for Emissions Reduction Alberta, because a lot of us talk about reducing emissions. A lot of us talk about lessening our footprint, but not all of us actually do. And that's what you're expected to do. Uh, great writing in the pages of Edify. I actually want to tee up your feature by reading from it. This right out of the lead of the piece, Carbon Burial, quote, Alberta is full of burnable energy and global demand for it won't wane soon enough. Unfortunately, we can't simply shut off the planet poisoning spigot while waiting for scalable renewables. We have to put the poison somewhere safe. That's what you're doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor. I, I look forward to hearing the introductions on the listen back <laughs> yeah. later on the podcast. Well, yeah, let me take a uh, start by taking a step back and saying that carbon dioxide is the largest contributor to climate change. We know that. And so in order to address this challenge globally, we must address carbon dioxide. And there are lots of solutions. You talk about some here um, and there are others. And frankly, we need all of them. Carbon capture or carbon burial, as, as we referred to in the article, is one of them. And what it entails is essentially capturing carbon dioxide molecules from exhaust gases, primarily at industrial facilities, before it gets released into the atmosphere and then storing it permanently in underground reservoirs. Now, there's, there's actually also a branch of carbon capture, if I can call it a branch, that involves using that captured carbon dioxide to create products of value to society. So rather than store the carbon dioxide underground, it gets stored in carbon-based products. And this is generally referred to as carbon capture and utilization rather than carbon capture and storage. And there are many reasons why carbon capture is compelling. Uh, if, I, if I may, I'll touch on a couple of them. Yeah, First of all, carbon capture is compelling because it's necessary, both Local and global analysis has shown that any realistic pathway to reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions needs to include carbon capture, period. And the reason for that is because there are existing industries that provide critical products and services to humanity, just like you talked about, like concrete and energy and plastics and metals and others. And these industries involve greenhouse gas emission sources that can be extremely difficult to reduce without carbon capture. Global greenhouse gas emissions are somewhere on the order of 50 billion tons or gigatons on an annual basis. And there's no single solution to this challenge. So we need 
ultimately many solutions to this challenge. And on top of that, we need billion ton solutions of which carbon capture is one of those. And maybe there's one last thing I'll mention is related to carbon capture and utilization. The reason this is so compelling is because if we can use that carbon dioxide that would others otherwise be emitted into the atmosphere or buried in the ground to create products of value, we can start to close the loop and move toward a circular economy where we use and reuse and reuse carbon atoms rather than extracting new carbon from a mine or a reservoir. So going back to your question in a nutshell, those are the primary reasons we care about carbon capture and why we launched our carbon capture Kickstart competition. I want to uh, and circle back and, and with the three of you focus on the innovation angle of this, because a lot of what you're doing uh, is to the average person going to be fascinating. But but I know that you'll tell us that some of the stuff's been happening for a while, including carbon capture as an example. So we want to really focus uh, in this next round of, of, of exactly how this innovation is manifesting itself and what this means for people with regards to tech and learning and what the implications will be down the road. We're talking to three of the stars, three of the featured individuals, the movers and shakers in Edify's innovation issue. You can check it out at edifyedmonton.com. We have a big event coming up on the 11th of May. We're really looking forward to that. Back to our roundtable in two seconds. I wanted to give you a quick heads up. If you don't yet have Mother's Day plans for Sunday, Friesen Brothers is ready to bail you out. You know that Friesen Brothers is all about family, still family owned after more than 65 years operating in Alberta, 16 different communities at select Friesen Brothers locations this Sunday, May the 8th, an all-you-can-eat Mother's Day brunch for just $25 a plate. You can check out all the details at Friesen.com. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Speaking of family-owned businesses, I've told you before about Eden Landscaping. Two decades, they've been earning the return business and the referrals of their clients means a lot to them, of course, for obvious reasons as they continue to bring outdoor spaces to life, including innovating. I mean, you want to talk about the theme of this roundtable. Eden Landscaping's right there, too. A lot of people are going with this urban butterfly yard approach. Mike and his team invite you to ask them about that when you contact them via their website. A way to support pollinators in nature and to leave your lawnmower collecting dust in the yard. Does that sound pretty good to a lot of you that find that chore to be a little onerous every single week? Learn more about the urban butterfly front yard approach at landscapeedmonton.ca. Speaking of doing things for Mother Earth, why not pursue your sustainable energy goals right now by getting a free quote online at kubienergy.ca. Jake and Adam and their entire team operating out of Kamloops and Edmonton means they're serving Western Canada with their Tesla certified solar installers. And they're experts on helping you save as much money as you possibly can. You go to the blog link at kubienergy.ca, you'll see links to the Canada Greener Homes Grant, the Clean Energy Improvement Program, even the Edmonton Solar Power Rebate, which is almost fully subscribed. So don't delay. Check out kubienergy.ca today. And once your solar's up and running, it's a great time to reevaluate who and how much you're paying for your electricity your natural gas, your internet too. Park Power's in the business of all three of those, and you can compare rates easily today on their website. They've got a great solar rebate buyback program, which is more competitive than anybody else in the industry. It's a great partnership with Kubi Energy, and the promo code 2022-REALTALK gets you 70 bucks off your first bill. 
Now we're just showing off, Johnny. Wow. Now we're just showing off. <laughs> As we get back to our innovation roundtable, these are three of the stars featured in Edify's uh, May issue, the innovation issue. We're talking to Dr. Lily Pang, a virologist. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Ross Mitchell in the Department of Medicine, an expert in AI as well, and Dr. Mark Summers, Chief Strategy Officer for Emissions Reduction Alberta. Uh, Dr. Pang, I know one of the things uh, that's been very difficult uh, for people across the country and, and to talk about our home province of Alberta is the lack of reporting or the lack of daily updates. We don't have as many numbers in front of us anymore when it comes to COVID infections, hospitalizations, who's in the ICU. And I think for a lot of people, it's, it's left them wanting more. How does your work with wastewater research help us better understand what's going on in the absence of that reporting? This is a great question. As, as everyone knows, right now, except the hospitalization, ICU report maybe still keep on. However, what's exactly going on for, you know, COVID-19 in Alberta, in the community? So right now, really government, I think Alberta Health, Alberta Health Service really use our wastewater as a primary reading. So why, I think, uh, as you know, these two years, three years, house system and the lab just exhaust the capacity, everything's still done. And uh, testing from a patient is so expensive. You need a collection sample, you need a shipping to the lab. For us, just the one sample can cover whole city. Like Edmonton, uh, only one wastewater treatment plant. We collect one sample, then we know what's going on overall. Of course, we, we provide a big picture. So also we develop, I think uh, under UFC colleague developer, we call the COVID tracker. It's really public access. Everyone is free, everyone click that. And then you can see your city, your community, your town, what's going on. Our wastewater test three times per week. We are real-time reporting, most is 24 hours. Of course, if plus shipment, our report time from sample collection to report the results only two days. I think even better than current clinical testing results. So that means you go there, you click there and uh, stop that thought, you can see the date, then you can see the level. So I don't encourage you to see absolutely quantitation, but rather than curve, okay, you understand that Edmonton current is decline and or increasing. So that is provide big picture about your community. So please use that to look at what your interest to follow up what's going on. The, pandemic in Alberta. So because we are test 20 side cover 80% Albertans. So that means almost most people already know what is going on in there if you go there. Fascinating yes. stuff. And you would imagine, can there be doctor applications for, for down the road? Like could, could regular wastewater screening predict something uh, within a community, something about to hit a community? I mean, are, are, the, are the applications as wide perhaps uh, as our imaginations could allow them to be? Yeah, for, for we, so far we have learned. 
So wastewater overall provide about a three day to the 10 days earlier detection. Of course, there is not truly, if there is no infection, of course, we are not able to detect it. And of course, if you only have a one infection in the Edmonton, you know, get the purple go, go to, we are not able to detect because one go to the one million pulled sewage. Still, we do have some sensitivity, you know, limited. For example, um, Banff, Banff wastewater treatment plant, I think a cover about 10,000. If there is a two people infected, we are able to detect wow. half of the wastewater. So that is basically different population. You know, Edmonton, we maybe need 50 people infected, contribute to the wastewater we can detect. And if the long-term care facility, only one person, if the person, of course, the long-term care facility, there is a limited, a lot of senior people use diaper. If you use diaper, we are not able to. One person, if drink to the wastewater, we are detected. Score we feel why we are not able to successfully detect. Most of the student in the school time, they are not going to poo So this is why we try to think about a look at school outbreak, you know, predict outbreak, but end of day didn't work very well. It's fascinating. It's just want to say, yeah, want yeah. to show something. Thanks. I, I, I want to remind everybody that you can learn more. I mean, the, the, the master journalists that contribute to this Edify issue really get into these stories as well and talk about grander implications. And it's really worth your read. Um, Dr. Mitchell, just kind of a question I'd ask you over a beer. Um, you were down in Arizona uh, from 2011 to 2019. Uh, it's a pretty fabulous place to live. And I know that if you talk about, re, you know, you talk about research centers or how, how universities gauge how they're doing or for that matter, how cities gauge how they're doing. A big part of that is who you can recruit to bring their talent, to bring their family uh, to, to contribute through, you know, the significant years of their career. You had 10 years down fun in the sun, I'm sure. A beautiful place yeah. to live. What, what prompted yeah. you? And, and we all love Edmonton. I'm not taking a shot at Edmonton, but what prompted you? What drew you to, to leave the Mayo Clinic? Uh, and, and opportunities you had down stateside and, and moved to Alberta? Uh, well, there are a bunch of things, but primarily it comes down to um, the ability to do what I wanted to do. Uh, and that comes down to the Canadian healthcare system and the fact that it's population-based. And in Alberta, we have something uh, e even special above that, which is uh, we have a single healthcare provider for the entire province. They provide, you know, Alberta Health Services covers about four and a half million people and they've uh, initiated this huge program to connect all the facilities that they run in the entire province, it's all over 100 hospitals, and collect all their data and put it in one location. And the reasons for doing this are obvious for healthcare. So that a physician or a nurse or anybody can see your entire patient history. It's really cool. Uh, I don't know if they really realized how powerful this is for training algorithms, for artificial intelligence algorithms, because it relies on the quality of the data. And we hear a lot about bias and uh, AI being able to amplify bias. Well, the best way to avoid that is to have truly population-based data. And uh, Edmonton and Alberta are one of the few jurisdictions I'm aware of that have truly centralized population-level data covering the entire lifespan of four and a half million people. 
This is something that's incredibly difficult to achieve in other jurisdictions, particularly the United States, where they don't have public health care and they have financial incentives not to share data. So uh, that's a huge factor. But other things are you have to have a great university and you need that university to have a great medical school, a great computer science and engineering department, and most of all, a fantastic AI team. And the University of Alberta checks all those boxes. Um, and there's very few places that have a world-class AI team and a world-class hospital and a world-class engineering and computer science school all on the same campus. It's just amazing. And then you need a healthcare provider that's got the visionary leadership to let this happen. And that's from interviewing top people at AHS, that's the impression I got that they were really behind this and wanted it to happen. And then you need ways to commercialize it. If it's going to impact patients, we have to spread it widely. And that requires commercialization because of regulatory approval. Um, and uh, to do that, you need non-traditional funding sources. And so I look, you know, I have this long list that I keep and I get bugged a lot uh, over the years to, to move to different places. But when this opportunity came up and I started digging into it, I saw that for the first time really in my life, all the boxes were checked. Mm. So uh, even though I went from, actually most recently, I was in uh, Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. So I went from the uh, the Lightning to the Oilers and uh, we'll see what happens this uh, Stanley Cup run, but uh, go Oilers <laughs> and, and, and go Leafs too. <laughs> yeah. Go Oilers and go Leafs. I guess I can, cheer yeah. for, I, I can cheer for that in the sense that I would love to see the Oilers beat the Leafs for the Cup. I mean, that would be unbelievable. Unbelievable. That'd be unbelievable. But I'd like to see the Leafs beat the Lightning. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, oh gosh. I mean, we, we could turn this into a hockey roundtable if the three of we you could, agree. We we, no problem. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that. Um, Mark, let me ask you this, Dr. Summers. Uh, this is. Uh, you know, I'm just sort of thinking of some of the stories that have come across our radar uh, in the past week or so. And uh, and I'm not going to ask you specifically about avian influenza. Don't worry about it. But but the avian flu, I, I talked to an, an animal rights advocate, uh, Jessica Scott Reed, who joined us on the show earlier this week. Uh, we're going to be talking to, to poultry producers and to farmers next week. And we want to get a, a bunch of different perspectives on this story. But one of the positions that that some people will take and, and they're welcome to take their position. This is their personal conviction. But you say, look at avian influenza. Look at all these chickens being called and people will say, well, quit eating meat. It's time for everybody to quit eating meat. And then if we take a look at, at stories around uh, pollution in cities or traffic congestion or the length of people's commutes and people will say, well, just stop driving. People need to get off cars. People need to just stop driving. And same sort of a thing with emissions and same sort of thing with environmental concerns. People say it's, it's time to go wind. It's time to go solar. It's time to go nuclear. It's time, time to go with all the geothermal and all the other options. And, and to a certain degree, that is true. And industry will evolve and it is evolving. And we see those investments happening. Uh, but at the same time, I think that th there's uh, a point that needs to be made on a show called Real Talk that that stuff doesn't happen like this. And some people are still going out and buying brand new SUVs because their family needs the space and because they travel and because that's practical for them. And some people aren't ready to swear off meat completely. And some people don't think it's realistic that we just keep the rest of the oil and gas in the ground. Right. So how does this factor in? How do you find that balance with regards to how you approach your job where people will say, well, we're just continuing to make excuses or to make it possible to lengthen our transition off these combustibles, off what's described in the edified piece as poison. How do you find that balance in how you direct your career and your research? Yeah, fantastic question. And I would say it's really 
in all of the above solution. As you talked about, you talked about renewables, you talked about geothermal, you talked about reducing consumption, you talked about uh, electric vehicles, which necessitates electrification and that electrification uh, necessitates reducing the emissions from the electricity grid. And so it's absolutely all of these. And that's, we have taken at Emissions Reduction Alberta since the beginning, a portfolio approach. I mean, you know, I started saying earlier on, there is no one single solution. There's no silver bullet to addressing climate change. It has to be an all hands on deck approach and it has to be a complete solutions approach. Uh, and so the way we we strike that balance, um, you know, part, part of my role is trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, but it's better than tea leaves because we have a lot of excellent analysis, excellent research, um, and excellent thought leadership in the province of Alberta, across the country, and around the globe in the area of climate change. And so we have the opportunity to, so to speak, learn by doing. We've been operating since 2009, making investments into carbon capture and storage, as well as a number of other areas. And we can see what the trends are. We can see where things are going. We can, we can look back and Based future investments on the success of our past past investments, uh, as well as identify new, exciting, innovative, transformative, disruptive opportunities that as they come up through the pipeline. We work very closely with uh, partners across the innovation ecosystem, partners like Alberta Innovates, partners federally, Natural Resources Canada, SDTC, EDC, BDC, a number of others. And we have a real tight network and ongoing communication. So when something new comes up, when trends come up, when we realize we need to move out of an area, move into another area, when we see something that could be really transformative, we are a nimble organization. We have the opportunity to get on top of the ability to get on top of that and and to pivot and to strike the right balance. Love it. Before I thank the three of you for your time, um, and I, and I, we've, we've already kept you a little bit past, but I, I, I'm filled with questions. I have so many questions. On the general theme of innovation, I always want to leave people, especially on a Friday, right? We're about to head into our weekends. Let's ins- I mean, people are already going to be inspired. You're already blowing people's minds. They're going to go to edifyedmonton.com and read the full articles. But I want to ask each of you to just give us just a closing thought. Just something to chew on. Maybe it was some advice somebody gave me you one time. Maybe it's a mantra that, 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 that has directed the course of your career. Uh, maybe it's encouragement or, or a call to action or a warning. Lily, Dr. Pang, you want to go first? Something to leave us with today? Today, I just uh, take a rest after this show. <laughs> take a risk. So, I love it. I think uh, I really thought innovation is a key person to prove our, for me is my, you know, microbiologist, virologist, and also, you know, the diagnostic related. So I thought technology innovation is key to to make our, you know, doesn't matter from a clinical point of view and from our diagnostic point of view, from our research point of view is is key points. We are really looking for some new technology, new platform, make our our study more easy. For example, we don't need the collection sample, spend the huge money and go to the lab and do the test. Why not? We just take a little sample in the side and like the antigen test, go there, pull, immediately get the results. That is my dream. This is what I really looking for. That's it. Love it. Ross? Dr. Mitchell? Sure. So uh, innovation is teamwork. It's a team sport. And 
to really uh, push the needle, you need to have the right people in the right place at the right time with the right leadership. And I am so incredibly excited and, and thankful to be able to be in Edmonton right now to try and help move the needle on uh, AI and precision health because I honestly believe this is one of the few places in the world where the right mix exists at the right time. Uh, and it's, you know, that's wasn't even a hesitation for me to pack up and move from Arizona or, or Florida to come to, uh, to Edmonton. Absolute no brainer when you look at the opportunities that are present in this city. So uh, I, I look forward to innovating with the bright team and the great environment. Love it. And uh, yeah, and, and what an endorsement for the city, quite frankly. Uh, Mark, Dr. Summers, last word to you. Yeah, thanks. And I definitely want to end on a positive note. And I'm going to build on um, Dr. Pang's remarks and talk a little bit about the, the global pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and say that what that has taught me is that as a global community, we can rise to significant challenges. We can innovate in terms of technology with respect to the vaccines that have been developed in record time. We can innovate in terms of supply chain development, supply chain management, in terms of government action, policy, regulation, uh, approval, standards. We've seen success and climate change is the sort of defining global issue of our time. And we have the ability to rise to the challenge. And I'm confident that with the stuff that, that I've seen come across our desk at, at ERA, there's tremendous opportunities, tremendous innovation happening in Alberta, in Edmonton, across the country. And we have the opportunity to rise to this challenge. I love that. Uh, I, I love the uh, sort of the peak behind the scenes of what drives the people that are innovating in our communities. That was Dr. Mark Summers, uh, Dr. Ross Mitchell, and of course, uh, Dr. Lily Pang as well. My thanks to the three of you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to Wednesday's event that's coming up next week. Uh, or pardon me. Yeah, is that Wednesday? Yeah, it is. The 11th, right? We're looking forward to it. Wednesday, this innovation event. Uh, Wednesday, May 11th. Tickets are still available via edifyedmonton.com. The keynote, I'm proud to host it. The keynote uh, is going to be Victor Kui. We, we've had him on the show before. He, he has built like sports media empires. Basically, he's, he's had a lot of uh, experience building a big MMA uh, entity. And now he's brought his talents, as mm -hmm. LeBron did to South Beach. He's brought <laughs> his talents to the Edmonton Elks. And he's going to be the keynote speaker next Wednesday. Uh, details at edifyedmonton.com. Yeah. It's Victor's it's just a great mind. You have to hear this guy talk. I sort of wondered where that conversation might go when the when the Maple Leafs got brought up <laughs> and then playoffs and then the, oh they're still here with us. <laughs> so, yeah, you, they want to stick around for the hockey talk. Yeah, go I don't Oilers. know. Yeah, go Oilers. Go there you go. There you go. How about Calgary last night as well? And uh, yeah. you know, uh, getting pumped by Dallas. I don't think they expected that. So. No. So I'm sure all these series are like, oh, it's going to go one way and then it switches going back the other That's way. That's how we want it. Though, like what's right? going on? The Bruins yeah. are going to get beat by the Canes, are they? They're down let's two go, games to nothing right now. And uh, let's go seven games every series. Let's get this into July. Yeah. Is that what you're looking for? <laughs> I don't know if people need I want that. as much fan in the building playoff hockey as we can get out of this. Squeeze because people, people have been starved of this yeah. for a couple of years. Squeeze and you out. can tell there's just the, there's these fan bases that are just yearning. Like in our home city, we know that not everybody who listens to this or who watches this is from our home city of Edmonton right now. But you've got the Moss Pit, they're calling it, yeah, which is like one of the most brilliant names I've seen for anything. Um, what, what do they call They call it Jurassic Park in Toronto, where everybody hangs out outside Raptors, Raptors games. games. The Jurassic Park, but the Moss Pit in honor of the late Joey yeah. Moss to me is uh, absolutely brilliant. But and even I'm, like I grew up in Ontario and I remember watching Leaf games with my stepdad and just 
you'd hear people honking outside the windows. It's yeah. like that here in Edmonton right now. When when a goal gets scored, yeah, sitting in my condo, I hear stomping. I hear you know <laughs> yeah. everybody riled up. It's great. And then uh, as a as a, uh, a stick tap to Joey uh, yeah. Tomas, every time the Oilers win, we play La Bamba. And wouldn't it be great the first year we bring in our win song as La Bamba? Wouldn't to, that be great to to go all the way? To go, oh, we're, still, we're talking all the way now. Eh? I'm knocking okay, on wood. Let's, let's, hey, get, to, hey, let's get to the second round. Let's get to the second round. Let's see what happens. And, well, we'll see. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm I'm just a fan of hockey, Johnny. I'm just a fan of the game, sure, and I'm yeah. a fan of uh, fans getting involved and having ways to channel their energy. Hey, speaking of uh, social and sporting endeavors, speaking of getting together and celebrating, we wanted to remind you that registration is not only now open, but it's quickly filling up our inaugural Real Talk Golf Classic. It goes Thursday, June 23rd. Uh, it's a shotgun start at 2 p.m. We recommend you take the Friday off work. You don't have to, but we're going to have a great time. Go to ryanjesperson.com under the events link. You click on the Real Talk Golf Classic, and that's going to take you to the registration page. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can get involved. Uh, number one, you can get involved by registering to play. Of course, the Real Talk Golf Classic, uh, we're seeing registration fill up. we got spots for 144 golfers. That's it. Oh, no. It's capped at 144. So you don't want to be left on the outside looking in you can register today and if you're interested in coming on board as a sponsor we do have some great opportunities for you there as well you can send an email to golf at ryanjesperson.com or you can just go to our connect link on our website and get in touch with us there all of the proceeds like every single dollar that comes out of this golf tournament is going to our real talk julie roar scholarship Mm -hmm. which is going to provide an annual scholarship five thousand dollars to a post-secondary student who's lost a parent to cancer in honor of the founding member of our editorial board, our dear friend, Julie Rohr. It's June 23rd at the ranch, my home course. Love it there. Like I told you, Johnny, so just, you, you just the a- perfect mix of, of beauty, challenge, and party. So you have an edge on everyone. <laughs> I guess in a way, although anybody that's ever golfed with me would never argue that I have the edge on anything. I was just going to say... Except the partying. 144 people are going to see my horrible swipe. No, people are going to hear you spinning <laughs> tunes. That's and, true. And we're setting it up. Here's what I... Let's paint a quick picture for folks here. I mean, it's Friday. We can ramble for a little bit. Might as well leave the music bed because I kind of like it. It's I beautiful. like talking with the music bed underneath <laughs> us. I'm not going to golf in the tournament. What? I'm going to set up on a tee box... And I'm like, whether, whether I'm going to be handing out beef on a bun or taking people's shots for them, like I'm thinking... Um, the par, th- the, the hole number three, it's a par three. It's ah. an uphill par three. It's about 125 yard shot. I'm not going to say I hit the green every time, but I hit the green every time. <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's my pitching. It's, it's just my favorite shot. If I have a 125 yard shot, if I can hit my pitching wedge, I love that shot. Uh, so maybe we'll, ha- maybe we'll park on the third tee box. Uh, we'll sure. get you, maybe get you spinning records on maybe on the, on the, on the fourth tee box. There's a nice turn there at the golf course, so you, you'll be able to hear it from like four or five holes. I can do like a mobile DJ setup, just walk around the course. Is that right? <laughs> like the guys that have the call bear, like with the big yeah. thing around their neck yeah. at the football games, you can have turntables like that and just walk around the course with big antennas coming off your shoulders. Now I've got myself into it. This will You'll earn your way into Edify's innovation issue next May. <laughs> Nicely done. Hey, you know who else is doing big things in healthcare? It's our friends at Infinity Healthcare. We want to refer you to them at infinity-8.ca. It's their home support services in particular that we want to focus on today you click on services on their website and you'll be able to see what they're doing providing home health care and companion care including companionship meal prep cleaning pet care laundry services 
What about this time of year, the coordination of home and yard maintenance, errands, grocery shopping? These are the types of services that your loved one, is it mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, maybe a sibling of yours? They need these services. You want to make sure that they're covered, but you don't have the time or the emotional energy to make sure it's happening every day. This is where Infinity Healthcare comes in. You can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website. Their personality matching service is what sets them apart from their competitors. It's going to be a big weekend at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Have no doubt about that. Tis the season people are starting to think about getting out into those campgrounds, pulling that boat out to their favorite lake. And of course, if your family's in the mood or in the need potentially to get outdoors, but you don't have the the tools, the resources, the wheels to get you out there, the Jeep Wagoneer is probably one of the vehicles you want to consider. It's got room for everybody. You got your tents, your camping stove in the back. It's going to pull your trailer no problem. The Wagoneer is going head-to-head against the biggest full-size luxury SUVs in its class, and you'll find the best selection in the province at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. And if maybe you just feel like going for a walk to your local Dairy Queen this weekend, we're going to recommend that you make it the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. If you're anywhere close, they've got their Blizzard treats on offer, including for a limited time, the Girl Guides Chocolatey Mint Cookie Blizzard, the Reese's Pieces Cookie Dough Blizzard. That's our little guy Wyatt's personal recommendation. He's a big fan of that one. The Very Cherry Chip Blizzard Treat, and of course, the Cotton Candy Blizzard Treat, which I've gone on the record to say will be my next Blizzard purchase. And when I get one this weekend, I will be back to report on it early next week. You heard it here first. You heard it here first, folks. Okay. So, you know, every Friday, our friends at Local Environmental, as Johnny buckles up, (laughs) give us an opportunity to get what we need off our chest, right? To, to say what needs to be said. And, of course, to carry a little energy into the weekend. <laughs> it's a casual, chill little exercise we call Trash Talk! And we got this email from Lenore who says, I was driving our uh, son home from school the other day. He's seven. He's in grade two. He was sitting quietly in the back seat, which is kind of unusual for him. He's usually a bit of a free flow of thought and conversation. And so I asked him what was up. And as he stared out the car window, he told me he was sad. And so I asked why. And he told me because of all the garbage on the ground. He was right to feel that way. Litter everywhere along the road. I didn't really notice it, to be honest, until he mentioned it. Uh, I guess it's part of this time of year. All the snow melts and all of our apathy is exposed, reminding us of how much garbage was tossed out of our windows or carelessly disposed of through the winter months. On his suggestion, her son's suggestion, Lenora says, we're going to head out as a family to somewhere safe this Saturday and pick up a bag or two of other people's litter. Let's be better together, if not for us, for the next generation of kids who truly do care. That from Lenore. I love it. I felt like Lenore kind of went easy on us, actually, there for trash talk. It was more of just an encouragement. Thanks, Lenore. Thanks, Lenore. From Barry, I wanted to shout something from the rooftops this week, and I figured trash talk with Jessma was the best way to make that happen. So here goes. Thank you, Barry. Women everywhere, I support your right to choose. You're right to have access to the health care you need, including an abortion. And I'm truly troubled by what I see in the United States. I appreciate conversations about this, even if I'm the type to keep quiet on a public front. I appreciate a venue to discuss this stuff. And at the same time, I see a bunch of guys around me that need to learn to stay in their lane. If it's not your body, it's not your business, boys. That from Barry. Nailed it. How about this one from Chelsea? Uh, Can we go ahead and remove hugs and kisses from workplace interactions? (laughs) This one caught me. No, I was was like, huh? She says, seriously, I was at uh, one of the first in-person work functions we've had in the last two years just the other day. And a guy I work with was up to his same old greasy tricks, greeting his female colleagues with kisses on the cheek. 
It's totally inappropriate. It's completely out of line. And quite frankly, it's gross. And I don't know why he didn't approach me. Maybe he saw the steam coming from my ears. Keep your kisses to yourself. That from Chelsea. Yeah. I know a guy. That, I know a guy that at, at like gatherings, everybody gets together in at gatherings. He kisses, kisses, kisses people on the lips. It's like <sighs> number one, it's COVID. Number two, you're not French. I had an uncle who used to do that. Is that right? Creep me out. Like, just trying to like sneak into kisses. He would always say, "Friends hug, family kiss," and I was like, "I think." Sounds like something you hear on, like, Bad Santa or something like that. Lorna says, Ryan, I appreciate you reading the letter from the gentleman who took issue with your guest, Jessica Scott Reed, earlier today talking about farming and agriculture and, of course, this terrible avian flu. Lorna says, I'm happy to hear you've got other angles coming up on this story. I grew up on a farm. My parents and their parents proudly fed our fellow Canadians for many years. Let me, I breezed it proudly fed our fellow Canadians for many years. Appreciate that, Lorna. She says, now my younger brother's carrying on that tradition. Farming's not easy. There's a lot the public can't understand, just like people probably can't understand the intricacies or challenges that their job brings, right? But to suggest farmers or producers don't care about their animals is outrageous. We care very deeply, way more than most people would even understand. The odd, bad actor has a way of smearing our entire industry and is just not accurate nor fair. That from Lorna, who sent us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's where you can submit your trash talks presented by Local Environmental. You can get a quote on waste, recycling management, water hauling, portable fencing, portable toilets, and every Everything else across the prairie provinces at localenvironmental.ca. Speaking of different takes, different angles, and ag production coming up on Monday, farmer and entrepreneur Jeff None joins me live on the show. Looking forward to that. Make it a great and safe weekend, my friends. Go local hockey teams, and we'll see you Monday. Thanks for supporting Real Talk. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, technical producer John Hicks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Lawrence Sterlego, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.